and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. Thank you so much for joining me. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Hello to my Pursuing Health listeners. It's crazy to think that we are quickly approaching nine years and 300 episodes of the Pursuing Health podcast. This has been one of the most fun and rewarding endeavors of my life, and I'm not planning to stop anytime soon, but I thought it would be fun as we approach episode 300 to go back and revisit some of my all-time favorite episodes. Through this process, I have enjoyed meeting so many interesting people, hearing incredible stories, and connecting with all of you. So hopefully you will enjoy this episode and look forward to many more to come. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. George Slavich, who is a leading research expert in the field of stress and its impact on health. He is the founding director of the Laboratory for Stress Assessment and Research at UCLA, whose goal is to advance the science of stress and health to help prevent disease and improve human health and resilience worldwide. I've followed Dr. Slavich's research for some time now as I find our body's response to stress to be particularly interesting. Especially given the times that we're in, I felt like this would be an important conversation for all of us to listen to. A little bit of background about Dr. Slavich before we get started. He's been researching the relationship between stress and health for over 20 years. His area of focus is psychoneuroimmunology, which studies the effect of the mind on health and resistance to disease. By integrating tools from psychology, neuroscience, immunology, biology, genetics, and genomics, Dr. Slavich's research has provided new insights into the inflammatory response to social stress and helped to pioneer a new field of research called human social genomics. He's also developed the first online system for measuring lifetime stress exposure called the Stress and Adversity Inventory or STRAIN tool, and he's proposed a new theory called the social safety theory, which hypothesizes that developing and maintaining friendly social bonds is a fundamental organizing principle of human behavior, and that threats to social safety are a critical feature of psychological stressors that increase our risk for disease. Dr. Slavich completed his undergraduate and graduate coursework in psychology and communication at Stanford University, and he received his PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Oregon. After grad school, he was a clinical psychology intern at McLean Hospital in Boston and a clinical fellow in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He subsequently completed three years of postdoc training in psychoneuroimmunology at UCSF and UCLA. He then landed at UCLA, where he is presently an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences at UCLA, a research scientist at the Cousins Center for Psychoneuroimmunology, and the founding director of the UCLA Stress Lab. His research has been covered in many media outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Guardian, The Atlantic, Scientific American, Time Magazine, HBO, NPR, the U.S. News and World Report, and others. In this episode, we talk about the science behind how stress impacts our body down to the level of gene expression and immune system activation, what type of stressors seem to have the biggest impact on our health, some of the things we can do to mitigate the negative impact of stress and how measuring stress may improve our ability to address it on a large scale. We also talked about how Dr. Slavich's work provides insight into the current coronavirus pandemic, including the impact of stress on chronic systemic inflammation, why we should be practicing physical distancing instead of social distancing, and how best to communicate with others during this time to preserve the protective effects of social bonds on our health. 
We do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. We recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. With that, let's get started with this week's episode. All right. Well, welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm very excited to be here with Dr. George Slavich, who is a world-renowned researcher in the field of stress. And I... <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so thank you for joining me. And I want to get into a lot of details about your research and the things that you've learned. Um, but first, I thought maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how you got into this field of research and what really motivates you to do this work. Yeah, uh, of course. Well, thank you so much for having me. And especially during these uh, somewhat uh, changing and challenging yes. times, I think this is a really important topic for us to talk about. So it's just a real honor to be a part of this conversation. Um, I'm trained as a clinical psychologist. Um, I've been doing research on stress and health for about 20 years now. And for about the past 10 to 15 years, I've been very interested in this subfield of psychology called psychoneuroimmunology. Some people call it PI for short. And the basic idea, there you go, it's psychoneuroimmunology. But in short, you can think of psychoneuroimmunology as connections between our psychology or the way that we think about the world, neuroscience or, or neurology, neuroscience, the way that our brain process the world and immunology or everything having to do with the immune system. So the cool thing about psychoneuroimmunology is that we get to look at basically how our experience of the world gets uh, represented by our brains and how our brain influences our immune system and also how our immune system influences our brain mm -hmm. and our experience of the world, which uh, anybody who ever has ever been sick knows that we feel and think very differently when we're sick than when we're not sick. So long story short, we've been applying this perspective of psychoneuroimmunology to try to understand um, the different types of stress that people experience, how it influences our brain, and how our brain influences our immune system and ultimately our health. Amazing. Well, and, and I think it's amazing to to be bringing together so many different fields and approaches that maybe traditionally we're looking at stress from different angles and now you're really able to to put it together and see what an impact it can have on our body on multiple different levels. Yeah, and one of the things that's really made that possible is that the cost of these technologies has really come down especially mm -hmm. over the past 10 to 15 years. Mm -hmm. So neuroimaging or you know when you when you scan somebody's brain used to be very expensive and that's now become less expensive but also a lot of the procedures that you would do to take blood samples and to look at genetics and genomics, the cost of all those things has really become much more affordable, making it available to research use as well. So That's amazing. I kind of think about it in some ways, the way that our medical system is still very siloed in terms of we have neurologists and then we have psychiatrists and then we have immunologist and you know every different field that often doesn't talk to each other and when we can sometimes put all of those pieces together is where we can really start to get somewhere so yeah and i think you uh hit the nail on the head that's really one of the goals of my research lab at ucla is to try to integrate the psychology with the neuroscience and the immunology to try to have a more integrated holistic understanding of you know mind body medicine if you want to call it that or how our experiences the world really influence our biology, which influences health. Amazing. 
Well, let's just go through what... Can you take us through what happens in our body when we experience... First of all, what are sort of stressors? And then what happens when we experience one of those stressors in our body down to a physiologic level? Yeah. Um, Of course, I just have to say the caveat is, um, you know, depends on what type of stress you're experiencing, Mm -hmm. but we're all experiencing a disruption to our social lives right now. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, that's the first thing that comes to my mind is is, uh, changes to our our daily social routines or our social lives. So within, within the context of sort of that interpersonal domain, the different types of stressors we can think about are interpersonal loss or deaths that sometimes occur financial problems that are not interpersonal, but in this particular situation, you know, they're caused by this social distancing. So losing a job or being laid off, social rejection, divorces. Uh, I heard recently that the the expected divorce rate is going to go up during this, the social distancing. uh, Mm. So we'll see, of course, uh, people are, you know, uh, stuck at home with their partners for better and for worse. Right. Um, (laughs) So... Exactly. So financial difficulties, interpersonal difficulties, marital problems, uh, housing problems, uh, problems at work, those are the different types of stressors that we often think about when we talk about stress. We're particularly interested in social stressors because, because we think that our brain and our body is, has really evolved to try to monitor the social environment for basically how we stand in the social hierarchy. And why would that be important? Well, one thought is that our brain and our immune system is essentially trying to keep us alive. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, we need to move closer toward friendly other people and move further away from dangerous uh, other people, right? We want to form social bonds or tribes with people who can offer us uh, social resources, social capital, physical protection, et cetera. And we want to try to avoid you know, uh, hostile uh, individuals as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So one type of stressor we're particularly interested is um, what we've called social safety or these social safety stressors, which are essentially what's the underlying nature or quality of the social relationship? Do you perceive the world as being um, or other people as being um, friendly, um, helpful, dependable, uh, or do you experience other people as being undependable, unpredictable, Uh, hostile or conflictual. Mm -hmm. So any of these types of stressors, we think that this idea of sort of socially safe versus socially threatening environment is one of the critical dimensions that the brain and the body is really designed to tease out in the environment around us. Okay. Now, when we experience those types of stressors, we have different systems in the brain that essentially process that those dimensions of social safety versus social threat. And uh, under experiences of social threat, we have uh, systems in the brain, technical systems like the the amygdala, the anterior insula, dorsal anterior cingulate cortex that essentially make judgments about the extent to which our our body is in a predictable and socially safe environment versus a threatening environment. Uh, the amygdala, for example, comes online when we're exposed to fearful stimuli. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we're exposed to those stimuli, our brain can then send signals down to these different physiological stress pathways that are all throughout the body. And there are just a couple of pathways that we really care a lot about. The sympathetic nervous system is, uh, is the, the main output is uh, epinephrine and neuroepinephrine. 
And uh, that's really a key physiological response that enables us to mount the uh, metabolic energy that we need to, to react quickly to a stressor, mm -hmm. the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access, which is often called the fight or flight, a response produces cortisol, which we all know about. And then, of course, the immune system, which is essentially one of the main systems in the body that's not talked about a lot, but we found in our research that especially when people are exposed to social stressors like social threat or social rejection, the sympathetic nervous system and the HPA axis can produce these hormones like epinephrine, neuroepinephrine, and cortisol, which have huge effects on the immune system. And one of the effects that is uh, caused by, this, um, by these types of social stressors is a huge increase in inflammation, which I know a lot of your viewers are interested in. And yeah. Yeah, definitely. So how, and, and let's talk to you about, you know, that inflammation and how we were evolved to mount that inflammatory response, what that, how that serves us, but then how in many situations now where individuals are under this chronic daily stress, you know, how does that chronic inflammation impact our health? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's one of the now well-recognized topics that a lot of researchers in the health sciences are interested in. So people have studied inflammation for decades and decades. And, you know, inflammation, many of us recognize as the body's primary response to some kind of physical damage to the skin barrier. So if, for example, you scratch your arm or, uh, or you have a, a finger prick or something like that, you might notice after a few minutes that you have some swelling or redness in that area of tissue damage. Um, you, you may have some heat, have some warmth around that area. That essentially is the body's localized inflammatory response. Now, in addition to that localized inflammatory response, you also have what's called a systemic inflammatory response, which is essentially the widespread release of these inflammatory proteins that are called cytokines. These cytokines that travel all throughout all different compartments of the body can not only have this heatness, uh, heat and swelling and localized inflammatory response, but they can also have huge biobehavioral effects um, that influence things like mood, cognition, motivation, and essentially everything uh, about our, our behavior can be influenced by this system. Now, under normal circumstances, if you're exposed to some kind of physical uh, danger, the idea is that your body will increase its inflammatory response so that in the case that your body is actually physically wounded, those um, inflammatory proteins, these cytokines, can rush immediately to the location in the body where the damage occurred, and they can accelerate wound healing and recovery uh, to limit the spread of infection and to essentially uh, promote you know, good health and recovery as quick as possible. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing we think that might have happened uh, is that the, the brain and the body may have gained the ability to scan the environment and to anticipate when some kind of physical threat might have actually been most likely to occur. So in other words, you can imagine that if this uh, recuperation and recovery process only comes online after the body is already damaged, mm -hmm. then it's not going to be as effective at, at promoting wound healing and recovery 
than if that system came online in advance or before the body was actually damaged. So what we think might have occurred is that the brain may have gained the ability to scan the social environment for different types of social interactions or social situations that historically would have increased the likelihood that we could have uh, had physical damage to our body, let's say, as a result of uh, physical conflict or encountering a dangerous person or a dangerous animal. Now, I think you highlighted the really important question, which is how does that, what, what implications does that have for going about our daily lives? Mm-hmm. Well, what that means is essentially that we have gained the ability to imagine different types of social situations that could have historically increased risk for physical danger. So let's say you, let's say you have a really angry bra, a boss or a hostile boss and you want to prepare yourself to have the right biological resources when you encounter that person, well, one thing that we think the brain does is it has the ability to imagine how that social interaction is going to go, even though you're not yet in the room with that hostile boss. Mm -hmm. Now, that has it's a double-edged sword, because on the one hand, being able to imagine that kind of social situation is what essentially allows us to get along with other people, mm-hmm. right? So if you have a if you have a meeting with the boss on Friday and he's and he or she is not a very nice person, you can imagine that social interaction sitting in bed on Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday mm-hmm. night. You can plan for what you're going to say, what you're going to do, how you're going to react. Inevitably, that should make you be able to get along with that person better, to cooperate, and to work together. So that's the good side of being able to imagine that. But Mm -hmm. the bad side is that simply by imagining or having that symbolic representation of that interaction in your mind, that itself is sufficient for bringing the immune system and the inflammatory response online, even though the hostile person is not actually in the room Mm -hmm. with you at that moment in time. And that's really the double-edged sword that I think is really critical to recognize. Our ability to symbolically represent these types of social interactions with a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a wife, or a boss is what can is the glue that brings us together. It enables us to imagine what other people need mm-hmm. and want from us. But in those cases where we expect the worst to happen, or we where we sort of you know look at the world through dark-colored glasses, and mm-hmm. you know sort of glass half empty kind of thing. Um, those are situations in which we can perceive threat that's not in our immediate environment that would then increase our inflammatory response over a long period of time. And that's when that biological response tends to be particularly damaging. Wow. <laughs> that's a lot to digest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it was so complicated. Well, it gets more complicated because you've done, a lot of your research has been actually looking at at a field called social genomics. So you're actually looking at how do the interactions affect our gene expression and then the gene expression, how they affect, you know, how does that affect our inflammatory environment or turning on certain genes that produce pro, yep. these pro-inflammatory cytokines that you're talking about. So can you talk a little bit more about that and some of the research that you've done in that area and what you've found? Yeah. Um, the concept of social genomics is a is a um, is a term that I coined with my uh, collaborator and colleague at UCLA, Steve Cole. 
And uh, the basic idea is that as we as we have all learned in from textbooks, from uh, conversations, we come to think that we uh, inherit half of our genetic code, our DNA from our mothers, and we inherit half of our genetic code from our fathers. And uh, and that's true. And you know, but we also sort of learn that 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 genetic code remains relatively stable across our development, you know, and certainly across the different types of physical or social circumstances that we experience on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I said, well, you know, do you think that your genetics are changing, uh, you know, when you have to go and give a speech in front of a a group of coworkers, uh, you know, you would think back, well, I get half that genetic code from my mom, half from my dad. And well, no, that's kind of a crazy idea. Of course, that genetic code is not changing because I'm born with it. And Mm -hmm. for the most part, it stays relatively stable. Uh, well, that's true. That story is true in terms of the physical, generally true in terms of the physical structure of the human genome, um, sort of the hardware that our, our genetic code is, uh, is built around. Mm-hmm. But, but there's a critical distinction between that hardware and uh, whether or not that hardware is actually turned on or turned off. And that's this distinction uh, that we make in terms of gene expression. So you can think of this in terms of, for example, your brain also. So in neuroimaging, we can do a brain scan that's called a structural scan, and we can do a brain scan that's called a functional scan, okay? Mm -hmm. The structural scan basically says, what does the tissue in your brain look like structurally? Mm -hmm. The functional scan says, how are the neurons talking to one another sort of in real time as you're thinking or doing something? Now, we can come back to the human genome and we can essentially make the same distinction between the structure of the genome, which is which genes do you, are, do you have, mm-hmm. uh, versus the uh, function of the genome, which is which of those genes are turned on, quote unquote, turned on, and which of those genes are turned off. Uh, and as it turns out, the expression of those genes or which genes are turned on versus which genes are, are turned off can change dramatically in a matter of minutes to hours, especially when we're exposed to different types of social stressors like social rejection, social conflict, hostility, and et cetera. And now one of the main things that we found is that when people are exposed to these types of social threats like social uh, rejection or social evaluation, we see huge increases in the levels of expression in genes that are involved in supporting the inflammatory response. Mm -hmm. So the mobilization of immune cells and the uh, ability for those immune cells to produce these pro-inflammatory cytokines, which Mm -hmm. drive the inflammatory response. And we see something else that's very interesting, which is we see a down regulation or, or a lessening of the expression of genes that are involved in the antiviral response. Hmm. Now, what's the idea there? The idea is that, you know, you're trying to avoid danger. And usually when you're avoiding danger, it involves some uh, type of seclusionary behavior where you're moving away from people. Mm-hmm. And in that case where you're exposed to social threat, like that, like a hostile person or something, you need the inflammation to accelerate wound healing and recovery, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. just in case the body is damaged. So those cytokines can go and accelerate wound healing recovery. But you're also less likely to be exposed to viruses that might be communicated from other people around you because now you've Uh. taken yourself out of that environment. Mm -hmm. So what your immune system is doing is essentially saying, what are the threats that we need to have the greatest resilience for? Well, in this case, we need to have resilience to bacterial threats because our body might be injured by, Mm -hmm. by virtue of being in a conflictual social situation. But as we pull our bodies away from those social groups, we're less likely to get a virus, right? But now we can sort of see how that whole dynamic uh, relates to this particular social situation of the COVID-19, because that experience of social isolation, uh, which is a form of social threat that we think about, Mm -hmm. uh, increases inflammation at the genomic level the expression of genes that are involved in promoting inflammation, but as I said, also decreases the expression of genes that are involved in the antiviral response, simultaneously making us more uh, susceptible to inflammatory-related diseases, Mm -hmm. such as cardiovascular disease, asthma, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and autoimmune and neurodegenerative disorders, but also simultaneously more susceptible to viruses such as the common cold and potentially the COVID-19 virus, of course, that hasn't been studied in in this particular context. Mm -hmm. But we know from a lot of great work from investigators like Sheldon Cohen of others at Carnegie Mellon, that individuals who have experienced this kind of social threat have increased susceptibility to the common cold. And that's a pretty well-documented finding at this point. Wow. So it's it's really interesting because you think about if you do social distancing right and you truly are not in contact with other people, your immune system should be responding appropriately because you don't, you know, in theory, you don't need those antiviral properties. But the fact of the matter is eventually people are going to have to get exposed, I guess, with this virus. And so it's an interesting situation to be in. And how and how do we respond? Yeah, and I think you you just made a really uh, an additional critical point here, which is that social distancing, that concept is really not the right idea in terms of building uh, immunologic resilience mm-hmm. to inflammatory diseases or to viruses. Um, the idea of social distancing embedded in that concept is the idea that we should really pull ourselves apart from from spouses, from best friends, from other people who really mean a lot to us. And, you know, I don't have to tell you and your viewers that, of course, you can't get the virus over teleconference, right? (laughs) Right. So the critical thing about not um, getting infected with COVID-19 or any other airborne uh, virus Mm -hmm. is not social distancing, but of course, physical distancing. Right. Right. So we really want to switch people's thinking Uh, not from social distancing, away from social distancing and toward physical distancing uh, with distant socializing. And the idea there is that we really need to stay physically distant from everybody except Mm -hmm. for people that we've been quarantined with. But at this end, I should say, and at the same time, we need to distantly socialize with all of those people who mean so much to us Mm-hmm. So that while we are physically distancing, we're not losing that sense of social connection, social belonging, social integration 
that I think is so important for not only for our psychological health, but for preventing the immune system from going into that mode, that threat response mode where it increases inflammation and reduces the antiviral response. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the idea of social distancing, unfortunately, has that kind of underlying message that we should break those social bonds in order to uh, in order to not get the COVID-19 virus when what we really should be talking about is physical distancing with distance socializing, like right. we're doing here. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And it's true. It's when you are, like you just described, when you are socially distant and you're having those changes in your immune system, so you're upregulating the inflammatory response, downregulating your ability to fight off viruses, that is the perfect situation for a severe infection, right? Because we know that people who have chronic disease and who have this chronic inflammation are at high risk of getting severe disease. Um, and then you don't have the, the same ability to fight off the virus. Yeah. And I would say that that's, you're talking about sort of increased susceptibility to viruses, but you can imagine that for those people who feel really socially disconnected or lonely at this moment in time, and you know, we all know that we may know friends or family that mm -hmm. feel like they're in that position, that is also going to increase that inflammatory response and could, could lead to flare-ups and in inflammation-related disorders like mm -hmm. we talked about a little bit earlier like cardiovascular disease, like asthma. We also know that there's an inflammatory component to anxiety disorders and depression and even suicide, suicidal thoughts. So, you know, it's not just the increased susceptibility to viruses, but it's also these inflammatory, increased risk for these different types of inflammatory disorders, uh, especially among people who may already have either preclinical or clinical disease processes, some of these uh, inflammatory diseases that we're talking about will also be at increased risk under those um, circumstances. And sure enough, uh, you know, uh, loneliness as a trait or feeling lonely or reporting that you're lonely is a risk factor for all cause mortality, but is also a risk factor, especially for uh, inflammation related causes of death. And uh, you may have heard of the broken heart syndrome or these mm -hmm. uh, types of ideas also where, uh, you know, you have a, a two spouses that have been together for a long time. Uh, you know, the other spouse uh, passes away or breaks up with them mm -hmm. and they die of a heart attack, you know, relatively uh, soon after or a stroke, both of which have an inflammatory component. So we think about this idea of the immune system is really being exquisitely sensitive to the quality and the nature and the duration and the dependability of the social um, ties that we have. And our perception of, as I said, whether or not we're sort of socially integrated versus socially disconnected uh, really gets represented at the level of the genome and the brain uh, to essentially move the body into a preparatory stance to be able to deal best with the types of challenges and threats that it thinks it's uh, being exposed to. Oh, that's amazing. Now, do you know anything about whether communicating through technology, through video or through phone can still have some of the same protective effects as communicating in person and having those social bonds in person? I do. Um, and in 1996, there was a book that came out by, by a guy, a professor, communication professor at Stanford called Cliff Nass. Okay. And the name of the book was called the, the Media Equation. And he did all kinds of really cool studies to try to understand how people interact with different technologies 
it's hard to hard to imagine. We barely had cell phones back then. Like <laughs> there are these big bulky things. But he would do these really cool studies with computers where he would randomly assign you to the blue group or uh, or the red group. So you would have a, a red bandana or a green bandana, for example. Okay. And you would sit down at a computer and that computer would either have a red border around it or a green border around it. Well, it turns out that when people sat down at the computer screen that had the same color as them, they thought the computer was faster. They thought the computer was more expensive. Uh-huh. They thought the computer <laughs> uh, worked better and uh, had a faster processor and the screen had a higher resolution compared to when they sat down with a computer that had the other color associated hmm. with it. And that the, the, the idea behind the media equation is essentially that we... Our brains and our bodies are built to interact with humans, mm-hmm. right? Not to interact with pieces of technology, you know, because of course computers have only been around for a short period of time, whereas humans have had to process other humans for a really long time. So in his experiments, the reason that people liked the, the red colored computers better than the green color computers is because we um, essentially perceive social relationships with technology the same exact way. That's his hypothesis, is that we, ex- that we experience social interactions. Mm. So another, in, other, in, other, in, other way, in other way of saying that is that essentially we impose social interaction, the idea of social interactions on all of the technologies that we use, right? So okay. if you meet somebody else who's on the red team and you're on the red team, that means that you're supposed to work together, right? Yeah, yeah. If you meet your person on the green team, you know you're not supposed to work together. Okay. Well, long story short, the, the types of social interactions that really map on best this kind of media equation, he uses the equal sign to kind of think, to convey the idea that interacting with technology is essentially equal to interacting with other people. So if you take that theory, that means that the types of communication strategies that would be that we would be most well designed to uh, benefit from would be those types of communication strategies that most closely mimic what we do on a day-to-day basis. Okay. Right? So our brains and bodies are built to uh, you know, stand a few feet away from each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, I smile, you smile, mm-hmm. uh, you say something, I say something. We have this synchrony in our behaviors. I shake your hand, you shake back, mm-hmm. right? It's this real-time interactive process, uh, which is sort of this social dance that we do. Well, as it turns out, and maybe this should be no surprise based on what I just described, the types of uh, communication strategies that seem to be most beneficial uh, in terms of psychological health, involve real-time teleconferencing, uh, video conferencing, just like, not teleconferencing, video conferencing, like we're doing here again, mm-hmm. where I can say something, you can react, you can smile, I can smile. You know, we have this sort of sense of social connection, this social dance that we're doing, which is, you know, with the exception of it being on a computer screen, all of the behaviors are synchronized as they would be, you know, if we were standing on the street three, three feet away from each other. So if you have the option to uh, video conference or, or Skype or Zoom or uh, WebEx somebody, mm-hmm. instead of calling them up, then that's the, that's the preferential mode of communication in terms of our brains and our bodies. 
Well, that I think will be very reassuring for a lot of people right now with all the uh, video chats and FaceTimes. And I don't know, we've been doing a lot of a lot of different things, live workouts, virtual happy hours, all kinds of things that people are creating. We're planning a virtual Easter this weekend. So fantastic, reassuring to know that at least there's some benefit and we're not, you know, we're still able to stay connected even if we're not in person. That's physically distant while distantly socializing, right? That's exactly (laughs) what we should be doing. Awesome. Well, I just want to kind of recap and revisit this idea of chronic inflammation. So Yep. You just sort of outlined for us how stressors impact our body. So we have stressors then come in through our brain and through our thoughts, influencing the these stress the stress axis or systems, the sympathetic nervous system, the HPA axis, and then through those systems, through the hormones which are released, impact our immune system and the expression of these pro-inflammatory cytokines and genes that turn on certain parts of our immune system. And if it's chronically activated, we end up with this chronic systemic inflammation. And that can lead to chronic disease. It can lead to mental health disorders, all types of mood problems, like you mentioned. And so to me, I think that is so fascinating because I think so many people know that, you know, nutrition has an impact on chronic inflammation, inactivity has an impact, smoking, these other lifestyle behaviors. And so many times I think we just brush off stress as, oh, it's just something everyone has and we just live with it. But, you know, you have the science to show that this is actually having a huge impact on our biology. Could you speak to sort of the magnitude of that impact compared to some of these other lifestyle behaviors? Yeah. Uh, by the way, that was a great synthesis. So we can, oh. we can switch seats and I'll interview <laughs> you next time. Um, <laughs> Thank you. you know, the idea that inflammation is involved in health is really, is, is really not so new. Um, oncologists have been studying the role of inflammation in cancers for a long time. Uh, certainly cardiovascular docs have been really interested in the role of inflammation in heart disease for a long time. More recently, um, neurologists have been very interested in the role mm-hmm. that inflammation or especially neuroinflammation, that's inflammation occurring in your head, uh, how it impacts uh, cognitive uh, deficits and Alzheimer's disease, other diseases, neurodegenerative disorders. Mm-hmm. So that whole idea that inflammation is so important for health is not that new, but in The year 2010, Science Magazine, one of the leading uh, scientific journals, came out with the sort of top 10 scientific discoveries of the past decade. So not this past decade, but, you know, from 2010 and before. And they noted the role of inflammation in health in general as one of the most impactful uh, scientific realizations over that past decade. Mm -hmm. And what they basically were highlighting was this idea that inflammation is not just involved in cancer, not just involved in Alzheimer's disease, not just involved in heart disease, but really we should be thinking about it as a common mechanism underlying risk for poor health outcomes in general, and especially all of these health outcomes that have an immunologic component to them like we've been talking about. Now, as we sort of talked about early on in this segment, um, the normal inflammatory response is one that comes online when you need it and goes away when you don't need it, Mm -hmm. right? So let's take the the example of a hostile boss, for example, and let's Mm -hmm. imagine that that boss was physically dangerous. 
right? Mm-hmm. The most, the, the best, uh, most effective response that you could have is that you're not mounting an inflammatory response on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. You're not even mounting that inflammatory response on Friday morning because your mm-hmm. meeting is not until what, Friday at three o'clock, mm-hmm. right? From three to four. So the best inflammatory response is an inflammatory response that comes online on Friday from three o'clock to four o'clock when you're mm-hmm. in the presence of your hostile boss. And then once you go for happy hour, you know, the infl- <laughs> inflammatory response comes down. Why? Because you're no longer in the presence of your hostile boss. You're now in the presence of your loving, incredible, supportive coworkers who, you know, who understand what your boss is all about. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're you're relaxing, you're celebrating a great week and all hard work and everything you've totally forgotten about your boss. So the best inflammatory response is a strong inflammatory response that's well calibrated, that's time limited to the situations that you're in, that comes online when the threat is present and that goes away when the threat is, is not present anymore. Systemic conic inflammation, some, sometimes called SCI, mm-hmm. is Low-level inflammatory response, which is essentially doesn't go away. Some people call it sterile inflammation, meaning that it's not induced by some type of virus. That means that it's presumably induced by psychological stress. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can also be called non-resolving inflammation, inflammation that sort of lingers on in our body and doesn't go away regardless of the social situations that we're exposed to. We've talked about inflammation even during this segment in, in talking about all of its really nasty qualities. But I think there's a huge silver lining here, which is to say that the immune system is exquisitely sensitive to a lot of different factors. And actually, you uh, listed quite a few of the ones that would pop up in my mind. Mm-hmm. So, for example, diet. You know, we've all heard of kind of the, the Mediterranean diet, which is high in antioxidants, et cetera, mm-hmm. you know, leafy greens. Uh, those types of diets tend to reduce inflammation in the body, whereas diets, uh, you know, kind of this westernized diets, mm-hmm. the McDonald's diet, the, the Burger processed King diet, foods, lots, yeah. lots of processed foods, right? Not a lot of whole foods um, tend to promote inflammation in the body. Exercise can actually can produce inflammation in the muscles. That's part of the tissue repair mechanism mm-hmm. in the body. But that inflammation tends to resolve over time and actually make the body more resilient. One of the ways in which exercise really impacts the levels of inflammation in the body is influencing the, the number of immune cells that are stored in different bodily compartments. Mm-hmm. In fact, adipose tissue or, or tummy fat Uh, as we normally call it, um, is a huge storehouse of immune cells. So um, individuals who uh, who might be obese or morbidly obese, when they're stressed out, tend to release more of those immune cells and more of those pro-inflammatory cytokines that then promote the inflammatory response and keep inflammation going for a longer period of time. So it's it's relatively better to be on more on the lean side, so that your inflammatory potential is more limited when you're uh, when you're stressed out. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that sort of we don't always pay a lot of attention to because we're not awake uh, is sleep. Yes. Uh, in fact, disrupted sleep or not getting enough sleep each night is a huge driver of inflammation. If you don't believe me, you know, when you when you go to sleep tonight, set your alarm for, you know, three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> wake up, you know, after you've only had three or four hours of sleep, 
And you might notice yourself self feeling a little bit more anxious or a little bit more threat sensitive over the course of the day. Or try waking yourself up, you know, for 10 minutes every hour on the hour over the course of the night. And I guarantee you that you'll wake up feeling uh, more anxious and more threat sensitive. The reason that that happens is that normally over the course of the night, your body physiologically relaxes. You have a decreased uh, sympathetic tone and an increased parasympathetic tone, which essentially uh, has the effect of reducing inflammation in the body. If you don't have restful sleep, about eight hours for most of us, you have increased sympathetic nervous system activity and decreased parasympathetic nervous system activity, which essentially drives inflammation over the course of the night, meaning that you wake up being more inflamed. Mm. So sleep, uh, getting eight hours of sleep, but also quality sleep is really important. Uh, And let's see, so we talked about diet, exercise, sleep. You know, and of course, psychological stress, right? Mm -hmm. Our perception of the environment um, as being threatening, as being, you know, this dimension of feeling socially well connected versus socially isolated is extremely, is extremely important for us as well. Um, And of course, we can talk about some strategies to sort of reduce that psychological component. But I just want to drive home the point that although inflammation is the magnitude of the problem, we've estimated now that inflammation is, it contributes to about 50% of all deaths worldwide. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's a, a huge um, uh, burden, a problem, public health mm-hmm. problem that we have. But at the same time, it's the type of biological response for which there are lots of different levers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if changing your sleep is one of the levers that you feel comfortable, then you can change this lever over here. If exercising is one of the levers that you can change, then you can change that lever over there. Diet is another one. Psychological stress is another one. So um, you have, it's, it's a very malleable process that's open to being modified. And in fact, if you're suffering from, uh, you know, chronic inflammation, there are lots of different ways in which you can reduce it and 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 promote um, positive immune health. So that's reassuring. There's lots of things that are within our control that we can do to decrease that inflammation. If you're motivated. And that, of course, is that's in its own separate (laughs) box and maybe the, the hardest box to deal with. Right, right. I've heard you talk before too about the fact, you know, because of the fact that these stressors have to pass through our brain before they get to our immune system, there are some things that we can do to better you know, prepare our brain's response to those so that they don't have such a negative impact on the immune system. Can you talk more about that or maybe some of the tools you mentioned for impacting the psychological stress? Yeah, I'll focus on two. One is mindfulness and the other is some techniques from cognitive behavior therapy. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about mindfulness, for example, because I think that's a hot topic these yes. days and it's, <laughs> it's very relevant for this particular situation. And let's focus on that example we talked about um, with this sort of conflictual boss. You know, you you know that you have a meeting with he, he or her on a, you know Friday at three p.m. Well, uh, you know, for those of us in the world who are just a little bit neurotic, or you know, let's mm-hmm. say highly conscientious is a nicer <laughs> way to put about it. Like you know, to be prepared. You, exactly. Yeah, that's right. So you want to be prepared. You know, we'll figure out where the line between prepared and neurotic <laughs> is, but you know, somewhere in there. Uh, you you know this job is important to you. Doing well is important to you. I think that, that resonates with, with you know a lot of us out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, uh, you know, for people who want to be prepared, as you nicely put it, you're going to want to think about that interaction with your boss, you know, before it actually happens. 
to be quote unquote responsible. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's an important meeting, you just wouldn't go into that meeting and say, okay, you know, I haven't prepared anything. What are we going to talk about? You, know? mm -hmm. you would think about that um, situation in advance. Now, if you're a little bit more on the neurotic side or on the anxious side of things, those thoughts are not just thoughts about logistical details, mm -hmm. right? They also involve maybe sort of a, a negative tone to them about uh, him or her saying something bad about like, why weren't you more prepared? And then mm -hmm. you wondering to yourself, you know, well, I should really be prepared or you know, I'm at home all day, every day. Like, why haven't I got mo more work done? Mm -hmm. I'm sure that, you know, she's going to ask about that. And, you know, yeah, I probably should have done more, you know, because, you know, I don't even have to commute. So now I have an extra two hours a day, you know, like, what am I doing with my time? I'm not getting enough done. You know, she's going to be upset about that. You know, I know that other companies are doing layoffs. You know, is she bringing me in to lay me off, you know, or is he going to fire me? Things of that sort. Now what downward notice, spiral, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So now what you notice is that you have sort of thoughts going out in all different directions, right? Mm -hmm. You have thoughts going in the past, like last Friday when I met with him or her, you know, he said this, so, you know, he's going to say that again. I'm sure he says it every time we meet together. Or thoughts going in the future, you know, and I mean in both directions. Well, what's the idea of mindfulness, right? It's a very mm -hmm. non-judgmental approach. So the first thing is, is to not judge yourself for <laughs> engaging in that rumination about the past or that perseveration about the future. Mm -hmm. So you take a non-judgmental stance. When you notice that, you know, negative thought going into the future and thinking about, you know, what he's going to say in that interaction, you just gently grab that thought and bring, bring it back and bring it to the presence. Focus on your breath. Why is focusing on your breath important? Well, for a lot of reasons. First of all, it reduces your physiological response. So it sort of has a physically calming, uh, you know, a, a mm -hmm. response, but also because it brings you back to the sensations of this exact moment in time where your boss is not around. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's really the most important thing to remind your brain and your immune system about is at this moment in time, we are safe. Mm -hmm. We're safe from those social threats and from physical threats. It's just me on my yoga mat or me in my, in my meditative place, mm -hmm. practicing mindful breathing, mindfulness-based stress reduction. When we notice our thought, you know, going into the past, bringing it back to the, uh, bringing our thought and our focus back to the present. And of course, not judging ourselves for, you know, thinking in that negative light. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons that I think that mindfulness is so darn important is that the truth is, is that the majority of the time, we're not in the presence of conflictual or hostile people. Most of the time, we're around loving people, but our brain is, or our mind, I should say, is somewhere else. Our, our mind is mm -hmm. stuck in that breakup that happened, you know, six months or a year ago, or our mind is stuck in that uh, negative social interaction that may or may not occur on Friday, even though it's Monday. So the idea of that mindfulness strategy is to notice when your thoughts are drifting to the past or the future, especially when they're negative thoughts, gently bring them back to the present where you're around, you know, safe and loving others. Wow. That, that sounds nice, right? Yeah, it sounds really nice. And it sounds, um, it's so cool to, to understand too more about what's happening inside your body when, when you're 
being mindful because I think for a lot of people, it sounds like a very nebulous thing to do. And it's hard for people to sit still and it's hard for people to just be in the present. It's uncomfortable because we're so used to constantly preparing or thinking about things that happened in the past. And so to know that that, that actually has a, a big impact on yeah. our physiology, um, hopefully some more people listening will give it a try. Yeah, you know, and if your if your neural radio station is tuned to ninety nine point negative, <laughs> and uh, you know, and you crank up the volume, and you're sitting yeah. there in your car, and the types of thoughts that are going through your mind, uh, you know, now you're forced to be with yourself and to be with your thoughts. Mm-hmm. So if you're tuned to that radio station and you crank up the volume, you know, it's like listening to you know thrasher music or heavy yeah. metal. For a lot of us, it can kind of be overbearing you know, kind of one of the interesting things is that sometimes we don't know what radio station we're tuned to because we're not even in tune to what radio station is playing, mm-hmm. right? We, we sort of, what I mean to say is that we might have a lot of negative thoughts going through our mind, but we don't necessarily notice it because we're so busy. As you said, we're so uh, overburdened with everything that we, we're not even aware of um, the, that sort of negative tape playing in the background. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the important things of mindfulness is, of course, awareness. Mm-hmm. That's one of the first steps of, of being aware to what radio station your brain is tuned to, uh, you know, and also to bring a more loving, uh, accepting attitude toward those thoughts, that those thoughts are emanating from your lovely brain, right? Mm-hmm. And um, that those are things that we shouldn't be judging. We can own them for what they are, you know, then we can put them on a canoe and we can send them downstream, mm-hmm. noticing, oh, I had that thought, let me put it and let me send it on its way so that we're bringing ourselves back to the present. Again, where those negative thoughts are just thoughts, they're not reality. Mm-hmm. I love that. It's a good visual too of the canoe. I usually do the balloon where you put them in a balloon and let it float away, but I like the cute. Maybe I'll try that. <laughs> I love it. Depends if you're outdoors or not. Right. All right. I want to talk just a few minutes as we start to wrap up about quantifying stress and measuring stress because I know you're a big advocate for doing more of this. And I know you actually were just named a co-chair of a task force for man- measuring stress in primary care, which is of particular interest to me. And I know it's something that we really have not done a good job at. You know, we we try to do a better job at measuring other lifestyle factors, but even those we're not always measuring well. Um, but I have seen recently a big push. So even just, you know, in during my residency, we've implemented routine questionnaires like asking about social determinants of health and adverse childhood experiences and starting to have systems in order to address those. But I'm really curious from your perspective, what would you like to see us do in a primary care setting or in a general setting to be able to better assess stress um, and then be able to use that to impact people's health? Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think that's um, one. I mean, of course, you know, when it comes to public health, there are lots and lots of different things that we can spend our resources on. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm biased because I'm a stress researcher. But from where I stand on planet Earth, Mm -hmm. I think that assessing stress and reducing stress is one of the most important things that we can do as a culture, especially in the United States, where for better and for worse, we all wear stress as a badge of honor, Mm -hmm. saying how many hours we worked, how long our commute was, how many projects we're on, how long our resume or our CV is. 
without sort of, and, and sort of owning that and being proud of it, but not necessarily being aware of the fact that that's also, you know, has health damaging effects. And uh, I have a saying that if you, if you don't uh, assess it, you can't address it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really um, goes, hits home to the point of what you're talking about, which is that if you don't know how much stress you're under, then actually you don't know if you're under too much stress. Uh, you and know, I think we're I, pretty bad as humans at figure it just saying how much stress we're under. We're pretty good at just saying, "Oh, I'm fine. I think I'm doing great." Well, yeah. I mean, and, uh, you know, I I use this example of of an X-ray, for example. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, let's say that you're you you came in, you felt a uh, uh, you know a, a, a lump in your breast or something like that, mm-hmm. and your you you know your doctor didn't show you an X-ray, but said, you know, we we better go in and do a major surgery to take Mm -hmm. this thing out. This might be cancerous, but we're not sure. How big is it? Well, we don't really know because we can't measure it. Mm -hmm. I mean, what kind of crazy conversation would that be, right? Right. It's really hard to take the first steps or to be motivated to take some kind of medical intervention if you can't quantify what exactly is going on, Mm -hmm. right? So an example of a breast tumor, for example, you you know, you might do an x-ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or some other type of imaging technique, the doctor will come in and will put the x-ray up on the screen. We'll say, you know, here's where the tumor is. This is how big it is. This is what the, this is what the tumor looks like. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, based on that, this is the likelihood that it's a cancerous tumor versus not, or this is essentially, uh, uh, you know, what we should do about it. Now, of course, that's not just um, the benefit of knowing what's actually going on inside, but it's also the motivation that's necessary for you to take that thing seriously, mm-hmm. right? Without actually being able to see it, or as you said, to quantify it, it's hard to know how serious we should take something. And so I think true. that's really the problem with stress. Uh, we have the sense that we're maybe stressed out once in a while, but we don't... But Usually when you go to a doctor, it's very rare that a primary care physician uh, or even a specialist, a psychiatrist or, or even a psychologist, and I'm mm-hmm. one of them, would sit you down for a few minutes, assess your stress, quantify it, graph it out for you and say, you know what, you're feeling really fatigued or you have these autoimmune flare-ups and you think you're under a lot of stress. Well, guess what? This is the average baseline for mm-hmm. other females you know, Mm -hmm. age 30 to 35, and you're up here. Mm -hmm. So if you're feeling totally fatigued and wiped out, or if you're experiencing job burnout, you know why that is? It's because your stress is high. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that might not be the only reason, but but regardless of whether it's the only reason, the fact that you're one standard deviation or two standard deviations higher on your stress burden than somebody else, you know, of your sex and age, means that you should now be motivated to reduce your stress uh, and to engage in stress management strategies. And for the past 15 years, that's been one of my major goals is to develop tools to basically accomplish that. Mm -hmm. So we have a system that I've developed called the Stress and Adversity Inventory. And we have all the information about that on our lab website, hopefully, that you can link Mm -hmm. to, which is www.uclastresslab.org. Um, and essentially what the strain system does is it's a 18-minute interview that asks you about 55 different major stressors that you could have experienced over the entire life course. So it produces these really nice 
nice uh, uh, lifetime stress exposure charts and scores that compare your stress exposure to reference groups of people of similar sex and sex and age. Um, and I think that's really important for knowing, uh, you know, how much stress you're actually under, how serious you should take it. And, uh, uh, you know, whether this is a contributing factor essentially to whatever health conditions you might be experiencing. Yeah, I think that's so important because it's so, you know, I think people like to see objective data and it's true that does motivate behavior change. And and so often, you know, people want to see lab results or they want to see numbers in order to drive, you know, sometimes, you know, you talk about behavior change, but then until someone's A1C drops over the diabetes you know, level at yep. 6.5, now suddenly the motivation kicks in. And so I can see where having that objective data from something like the strain inventory would be really, really helpful. A1C, C-reactive protein levels, you know, these are all things that are normal uh, tests that you would get in a blood panel if you, you know, especially if you are at risk for diabetes or heart disease, mm -hmm. you would get an A1C level or a, a CRP levels and your doctor would interpret that and say, you know what, your, your CRP levels are higher than three or 3.5. Mm -hmm. We really need to bring your levels of inflammation down. Here are the targets that we're going to hit. You know, we're going to increase exercise. We're going to improve diet. We're going to improve sleep. We're going to do reduce stress, you know? Mm -hmm. How should we order that? You know, what's the pre behavioral prescription here? How are we going to go about it? And I think you said it exactly right that we need those same. We need all providers, healthcare providers, mm -hmm. uh, to take stress assessment just as seriously, I think, as these other uh, biomarkers of how the, the biological system is doing, especially because stress is driving the activity of those mm -hmm biological systems as we as we've sort of talked about. Absolutely. But if and you even, don't assess it, you can't address it. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to use that. Um, and I will credit you, of course. But but even to bring stress to the conversation, like you said, I think most of the time when you're having that diabetes conversation, you're it's more more providers are talking about nutrition and exercise, but even to bring sleep or to bring stress into the conversation is still not something that I think is commonplace. And so I think there's definitely a lot of work that we can do. Yeah. And I, and just quickly, I mean, I understand why that's the case because I think it's easier to pop a pill than it is to do the hard work yep. of, you know, reducing our stress on a daily basis or exercising more. And, uh, and unfortunately, uh, doctors also realize that getting their patients to do behavior change is a challenge. It is. And, uh, you know, and they're not necessarily trained as psychologists. So they, they open up their toolbox. They know what patients are most likely to do, and they reach usually for those psychopharmacological interventions, and stress gets the short shrift. Um, but I think these ideas of cognitive behavioral therapy, we didn't get a chance to talk about, but CBT is also well-known, mindfulness-based stress reduction. I think that those strategies have the, the long-term benefits of you know, carrying you through and really improving your um, psychological health and your physical health and immune health on a much more stable Reducing your stress will give back more to you mm -hmm. uh, than popping the pill, uh, you know, in, in the long run. 100%. Well, I know we only have a couple of minutes, so I'm going to do a lightning round for the three questions that I ask at the end of the All podcast. Right. The first question is, what are the three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health? 
Uh, number one, getting outside. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about green spaces. Of course, mm-hmm. that's helpful. The other thing about the immune system is that going out and being outside exposes you to a lot of healthy microbes, yes. which help educate the environment. So it's not just that green spaces sort of bring you back and connect you to nature, but they expose you to healthy microbes that make your immune system more resilient. And the kicker, of course, is that you're getting exercise while you're doing <laughs> it, right? So let's yeah. say going on daily walks, I think that's important, not just for the microbial uh, exposure, but also for the exercise. Number two, doing mindfulness at least, uh, I would say half an hour, you know, three to five times per week is mm-hmm. as, as much as I can get in. It's never enough, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Some people, of course, are specifically doing mindfulness, you know, yeah. all the time. I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm that good at it yet, but, you know, if, if, I, if I'm mindful constantly in my daily life by the time, uh, you know, that, that I die, then I'll, I feel like I'll have done well. It's and I think number three, you know, surrounding myself with loving, um, dependable, and supportive people, not only because life is too short to, to be around mean people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but because, uh, you know, you need to align yourself with people who can provide you with the right energy and supportive qualities that help you be your best self. And, uh, you know, if you have a lot of people around you who are sort of, you know, not supportive or conflictual or hostile, that is certainly going to have an effect on you. So not only do I want to try to be my best self all the time, but I'm also mindful that being around people who I love and who are supportive is also great for my immune system and therefore great for my health. Love it. What is one thing that you know would have a big impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it? Uh, implementing it. So I would, let's see. I think now that I'm over 40 years old, I think exercising, you know, the, the sort of prescribed 20 to 30 minutes per day, mm-hmm. you know, at a moderate to high intensity, you know, five times or six times a week, mm-hmm. whatever the exact doctor <laughs> recommendations are, now you can tell me. Uh, I think that now when I look back on my childhood and I think about how easy it was to get in way more exercise mm-hmm. than that when we were all young because mm-hmm. we were running around and we were playing organized sports and, mm-hmm. you know, it was a lot of fun and it was part of middle school and high school and maybe college for some mm-hmm. of us. I think exercising at that level, which is something that I look back very fondly of and I've always, you know, really loved sports, mm-hmm. is the thing that is uh, most challenging to do when you have a, a nine to five job or if you're married or if you mm-hmm. have kids. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a constant struggle to make sure that I can uh, not just, you know, have to do exercise, but mm-hmm. really enjoy exercise the way that many of us did when, you know, running around the block. We didn't call that exercise, we just mm-hmm. called it life. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I always just... I, continually struggling to bring myself back into that same relationship uh, with exercise it being a natural part of life that's just fun and enjoyable. I think that's uh, the biggest struggle now that uh, you know we're all adulting. Yes, I feel you on that one for sure. But um, if you ever want to try CrossFit, let me know. We'll get you started. Yes, we have a lot <laughs> of great friends that are cross, CrossFit uh, oh, good. enthusiasts. So. Good. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been very enlightening. Um, and I think especially in these times where, you know, really everything we talked about applies. I mean, this just the chronic inflammation and how even before this coronavirus pandemic, there's so much social isolation, there's so much stress that is contributing to that chronic inflammation, among other things, that's contributing to how people respond when they do get infected with the virus. And then there's this layer of distancing, physical distancing that we're going through, trying to remain socially connected. So obviously, a lot of different factors. I'm sure it's very interesting for you to observe all of this that's happening from your perspective. Um, by the way, do you have any plans to do any research on what's happening and the stresses that people are going through right now? Well, we've, we have some papers coming out talking about the importance of social belonging and kindness at this moment in time. Okay. Uh, and so we're very interested in that. And I would just say something to all the listeners out there, you know, which I've uh, heard on Twitter or reading some articles about, which is, you know, that this is a really huge moment in time. It's kind of, you know, the magnitude of the shift that we're all undergoing right now for, for everybody is just enormous. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it would be really a lost opportunity if we didn't take this time to look inward and to see whether or not we're really living the life with other people being socially connected that we really want for ourselves and for our loved ones. And uh, so I think, you know, if there are people in your life who you feel like you've gone out of touch with or haven't been well connected uh, to, I think this is the time to sort of take a step back to see what about your life has been interfering with that and to make a COVID-19 year resolution yes. to not come out of this the way that you got into it, but to try to redesign your life to double down and to align your values, to align your behavior with your values. So those people who really bring the most joy um, to your life to say, you know, I'm going to. I'm going to try twice as hard to stay connected to them and to make sure that they know that I'm connected to them than, you know, you might have done in February before this thing really hit. So that's what I think that's where my mind is right now, you know, to use this as a learning experience for our bodies and the earth to tell us to slow down, to examine yes. our priorities and to reassess what social belonging and what uh, social connection means to us. I love that. There's a, there are definite positives that are going to come out of this. And I think that's one. I hope so. Let's make sure that it is. Yes. Well, thank you again. We will definitely link to your lab website. I know there's also a link on there to donate. So if anyone wants to, is interested in donating to support your research, I think you can do that. Can you just say for us again what that URL is if people want to visit? Yep. The URL is www.uclastresslab.org. Uh, awesome. uclastresslab.org. All the money that uh, is donated, uh, of course, goes directly to our research fund to uh, help study uh, the psychobiology of human health. So thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people.